Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. As always, I'm joined by the great Calvin Betton, the almost as great George Belshaw. We're going to be going through everything that's been going on in tennis over the last seven days and indeed the last seven hours. We'll, of course, talk about Emma Raducanu, who's been in action of sorts at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, Novak Djokovic, yes, him, and yes, vaccines. And yes, Novak Djokovic Sr. We'll talk about Stefanos Tsitsipas. He's gone under the knife, and it seems under the needle as well. Uh, We'll cover the Davis Cup. Uh, We'll talk a bit about Joe Conta, and we'll, of course, give you the latest on Peng Shui and everything that's been going on with her and the WTA. Uh, Plenty of interest, of course, and we will keep talking about it as much as we can. But we should start really with Emma Raducanu. That's where I've been this afternoon, this evening, at the Royal Albert Hall in Kensington, which is coincidentally about two minutes walk from my office. So it's extremely convenient where Emma was playing what might most generously be described as an exhibition. Some people call it hit and giggle. It's not far off that. There wasn't a huge amount of hitting, if I'm totally honest. But it was live on the BBC website, which here in the UK is a big deal because it means lots of people will have watched it. Um, George, you're a veteran of these Champions Tennis events. I know that you like to swan your way into a box and drink for free all day. That seems to be your your play. I mean, it's not it's not particularly competitive tennis, is it? No. Um, yeah, this is the one event of the year where... Baram is really wheeled out and uh, <laughs> steals the show in inverted commas. <laughs> um, it, it's a kind of funny event. I, I was kind of surprised to see Emma sign up to it, to be honest. Um, well, she was signed up before. I mean, they've absolutely lucked out because she was signed up before she won the US Open. And she was signed up after Wimbledon. And they said, oh, because as you say, it sticks out on the schedule, really. You know, you've got the likes of. Goran Ivanisevic and Greg Rosetsky and Nitas Almagro and, of course, the great Mansour Behrami. And then this random women's singles match between Raducanu and um, Gabi Ruza, who, who was her hitting partner in Romania. It's, it's very odd indeed. I suppose it's an IMG-run event, isn't it? Yeah. 
which kind yeah, of yeah. So yeah, that, that that that's the main reason. But anyway, I mean, I think it's a good opportunity for her to grow her profile at home, I suppose, a bit actually play in an event that's not Wimbledon. Um, so so no real harm done from that perspective. And I imagine quite a good day for you to find a meter in the flesh, James. Yeah, it's it's been very odd, really, that someone could be such a now mainstay of the the tennis sort of landscape and none of us have ever met her. You know, that was the first time I was stood in the corridor on the phone to my sister and she walked past and I sort of, I double, I literally double took because I was like, that's weird that, I mean, other than on the court, you know, at Wimbledon and the rest of it. And of course the press conferences at Wimbledon were all kind of remote and you were very much removed from the players. That was the first time I'd actually been in a room with her, I suppose. Um, the, it sounds really silly, but I'm not a particularly tall guy. I'm five eleven. She's not very tall. I was, and this sounds really silly, but I don't know what your impression of it has been. But on screen and on the court, she looks very tall. Uh, and I was, I don't know what I was expecting. It's just, just the instant impression as she she walked past me. I was like, oh, she's quite small, really. Um, but that was just one of those weird things that you don't really expect. And then, um, and then, yeah, we had a, had a press conference with her afterwards in the bowels of the Albert Hall, um, which was interesting enough. Um, you know, I, Emma's a 19 year old girl. I don't think 19 year old girls are ever that interesting. Um, and she, she spoke fairly well and, you know, she was quite open about her plans and kind of what's been going on. She's been away in Antigua for the last week or so. And then she's, she's going to head off to the Middle East fairly soon and, do some training um she talked a little bit about her new coach Torben Belts interesting that she she hasn't actually started working with him on court yet she she's a week into her pre-season but it's all been kind of fitness stuff which I, I guess I mean Calvin you might be able to provide a little bit of insight into that she you know she's doing a I guess a four and a half week five week training block now I mean how much of that if a player is doing such a big pre-season block how much of that is fitness and how much of it is genuine tennis um, at the start, it would generally be more tennis. Um, different coaches have different sort of theories and philosophies on what you do. There'll be some who don't do any tennis for two weeks and uh, it's all fitness training. And then you get some who, who the, the other the other side of the equation is you get some coaches who do their fitness through their tennis, um, do some on-court cardio work and that kind of thing. So it, it really just depends. Um, I suspect, though, that that she's probably doing more fitness than tennis, as you said at the minute. Mm. Um, is that going to be the biggest, like, you know, she's about to go into her first full WTA season. Presumably the biggest challenge, quite apart from the tennis stuff, is, is going to be just the physicality of it because she hasn't had to deal with that over 12 months before. Um, I'm not sure about that because she will. she has played seasons before. She won't play any more matches, really this season than what she's played generally. And she won't play anyone who's physically stronger than what she's played the last two years. They're probably just better. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say that it would, that in itself would be the main difference. She has always had issues with injuries. That's always been a problem that she's had. I say always, she's only 19. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, over the last two or three years, she's had issues maintaining a full season. But that's at whatever level she's played, whether that be last year juniors, um, first year on ITF futures, first year in challenges, this kind of thing. So, so yeah. Um, it certainly was interesting to see her kind of hitting and it was notable, but or noticeable, I should say, 
the moments when they were playing exhibition points and the moments when she was stepping up and you kind of got the uh, the impression that much as Gabriella Ruza is a great hitting partner for her, she is not of the same level or calibre. And that actually when when Raducanu stepped up and flattened things out, you know, she was comfortably more the more powerful player on court. I don't want to read too much into it realistically. Um, I still think Amara Raducanu can't hit an overhead like that. It was in warm-up, you know, which is not the most challenging overhead you'll ever hit. She hit two consecutive that she missed 20 feet long um, that, that made me whisper to someone, she really does have one of the worst overheads in the top, top 30. And I was quickly poo-pooed um, because that sort of criticism is not required yet. And, and in fairness, it was a warm-up for an exhibition. So I'll probably back off a little bit. Um, but still good to see her on home soil. And I think as most of the reporting says, it, it was a, a very well-received afternoon. I don't think you could get a friendlier crowd, quite frankly, than uh, than the Sunday lunchtime Royal Albert Hall lot. Um, and they only get friendlier as the night goes on, I can tell you that much. Um, but interesting to hear her mention talking with, with Lewis Hamilton um, and also talking a bit about her kind of plans. George, I mean, you'll know this from having worked in the media for quite some time. She's going to be in Abu Dhabi for the Mubadala World Tennis nonsense, and we'll come back to that. And she's going to stay out there, but it means she's not going to be at BBC Sports Personality of the Year, which everyone expects her to win, which is going to create some stink, isn't it? Um, I suppose so, uh, possibly. I mean, I, you know my thoughts on this award. I, I literally can't stand it. I think it's a complete waste of time and a nonsense. I know we disagree quite strongly on that what's, point. No, what's your what? And why? I mean, what, why do you think I'm being a bonnet about it? I just, I just can't be bothered with it. I think it's completely pointless and meaningless. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just not for me, to be honest. But anyway, you're right. She, it's not for me. You're very much not in the target. <laughs> but she'll, she'll likely win. Um, and yeah, that's nice for her. I, I, I don't see people getting going after her too much, you know, she'll do a nice video and everyone will say, oh, what a charming young lady. You say that, but I've had people in my mentions on Twitter today because someone, I meant, I said on Twitter, you know, she's, this is her plan for the next six weeks or so. And someone said, oh, well, as long as she's back for sports personality. And I, I was like, she's not coming home for Christmas. I don't think she's coming home for sports personality. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, people get annoyed about that sort of thing. If you think of Andy Murray, you know, who's always struggled to win over the British public and he would always do his video from Miami or you know, Lewis Hamilton doing it from Monaco. It winds people up, like especially the type of people who watch sports personality. And I'm afraid that if you look at the Venn diagram, and I appreciate that if you're not a UK listener, not much of this will mean much. But if you look at the Venn diagram of people who are tennis and Emma Raducanu fans and BBC viewers, it's a very, very big crossover there. And I do think that that'll create some, I mean, it'll just be people on Twitter, but they'll still complain about it. I mean, people have to be realistic about this, though. Like, they're tennis players, right? Most tennis players around the time that this event is are on pre-season training. And you can't do pre-season training in Britain unless you're going to do it indoors. You wouldn't do it indoors because the indoor season's finished. So apart from the last, apart from last year, when COVID prevented it, most tennis players around December go to Florida or the Middle East, or somewhere to train, right? They, what do they want them to do? Like, put their whole career on hold so they can come to some, like, ridiculous bygone age to, uh, <laughs> event. And I no, do no, kind of, no, no, I kind no. of agree with George on it. 
I can't agree with George on it. I'm not, not as extreme as George, but I don't get why, like, <laughs> I've got a mate who's obsessed by it. And, like, whenever anyone does anything in sport, like, they might score the winner in the World Cup final. And his first comment is, that probably seals a sports personality of the year for him. <laughs> and it's, it's like, that's not the award. Right? The award is the World Cup. <laughs> and I think it's just, I, I do think it is dated in that it's from a period of time where most British athletes were back in Britain in December, because that's what happened. That's why and you would do it that happened. time of year, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's also the the argument that always comes up is, oh, it shouldn't, you know, he's not the best personality. And people don't understand that the word personality meant something different in 1952 when the award was formulated. And it's better if you just think of it as best sports person of the year. Um, I mean, if you will just humour me for a moment... Is there any question that she does not deserve to win an award that is given to the best British sporting person of the year? I mean, it's normally very hard for a tennis player to win it in an Olympic year. I know Murray has done it because he won Olympic gold and a Grand Slam, but typically it, it would go to an Olympian. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it is normally a lot harder this year. But yeah, I mean, in terms of an achievement, it's definitely been the biggest sports story in Britain in the UK I'd say her winning that um pretty pretty comfortably for me mm. this year um you know who else would be that makes I mean Hamilton's achievements have been amazing in, in I mean I think if Lewis Hamilton but, wins an eighth world title like break that that beats Michael Schumacher that you know and having been pushed all the way by Max Verstappen then I think he will be in the conversation uh, you're quite right George to mention the Olympic year um, I'm just looking back through Olympic years and sports personality and the last person to win sports personality in Olympic year and not be an Olympian was Damon Hill in 1996 um, and he beat Steve Redgrave who was second. Uh, number two in the odds is um, Tom Daly who is the leading Olympian but he's 14 to 1 and he's second in the odds. I think also that I, I don't know the exact stats anymore on this but i know that four or five years ago it was it was heavily favored that someone who that athletes who'd won things on terrestrial television had a much bigger advantage yeah. um so i remember there was one year when i think joe root first got the world's number one batsman and he, he was comfortably the best cricketer in the world but of course it was it was all on sky mm. so no he didn't get it. And i think that that explains right i mean tom daly are, are we are we having a laugh here like, like seriously, I mean, it's like it's, it's diving, right? And like I, I, that's why I can't take the award seriously. Like you, you can put an argument together that Emma Raducanu deserves it, but if the second favourite is Tom Daly for diving, I'm just not having it. I'm sorry. I mean, I mean Tyson uh, no. Fury, just like Tyson Fury is like the best in the world at the hardest sport that it's like <laughs> that it's hardest to be in the world. Like, so it'll just rejects it won't he? he won't bother he, he hates it as well he's in my camp Tyson Fury I'd for, quite forgot I mean if Tyson Fury was going to win the award he would turn up just for the record like irrespective of how much he might hate it in inverted commas <laughs> he would turn up they, um, they really short this shit or not I don't enough? think it's out I mean I could be wrong but I'm fairly sure it's not out I mean they've changed the way it's voted for these days as well so it's now isn't it now just voted for in like the space of an hour during the show um, in an effort to stop it being like tribalized, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a bit wild, but it's also a bit of fun. And I quite look forward to the absolute Twitter hatred that's going to come in when Emma Raducanu does it from like you know 
Abu Dhabi, which is going to bring all sorts of issues. I was going to say, I think one of the play just to give a bit more context to why I dislike this so much, is I think <laughs> I've, I've, had to, I've had to cover it for about seven years in a row from the office on a Sunday evening. I, I just can't stand it. Like, the, the whole award show, I just find cringeworthy from start to finish. But if I didn't actually have to forcibly watch it for seven years in a row, I probably wouldn't feel so strongly about it. I could just ignore it and get on with my life, which I will do this year. Oh, well, thanks, George. If you listen to the last 20 minutes, I can only apologise because clearly we've been wasting your time. Um, but yeah, I, we should move on from sports personality just to kind of fill everyone in on, on Emma Adekanu's plans now. She will head out to the Middle East. She's going to do a training camp there um, with Torben Belts and a couple of other um, fitness coaches and physios and things. She's then playing in the Mubadala World Tennis Championship against Belinda Bencic. It's a, you know, petrodollar exhibition tournament, but... Rafa Nadal is going to be there, Murray, team, Rublev, a few other people, so not inconsiderate. I thought it was interesting that that, again, like this one, is the only women's match. Everything else is men's, but that kind of tells you a lot about, well, partly about Raducanu's impact, but also about her management, I would suggest. It's, I mean, it's not much of a tournament in terms of competitiveness, but I, I think there'll be a bit of interest in, well, for me personally, I'll be quite keen to have a look at team around then. I think that'll be quite a, a good early indication of what sort of level he'll be at next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good One for the diary for the team time is December the 18th, incidentally. Um, it's, so that's what's a bit of a tangent. What happened to that thing that they were doing a couple of years ago, that like team event um, at the end of the season? Remember that? That's disappeared, hasn't it? What the other team event? And when you say team, you oh. mean T E A M, not the Dominic team event. <laughs> yeah, the, the T E A M event. Yeah, there was like there was like a Singapore team and a, a a Beijing team and things, and it was like some like exhibition. I've not just made it up. I mean, I'm like, I'm... Are you sure this wasn't like a fever dream that you had? No, it was like because <laughs> there was a big kickoff. There was a whole thing about how tennis players were complaining that they didn't have any uh, close season, and then they they extended the close season, and then they added this like. It was like you played for like a ta- a town or a, a country, and I think Federer played in it. And it wasn't the Indian Premier League. One. I think it might have been the International Premier Tennis League. That's the one. Yeah, it was. Um, they've still not paid staff for that. There's a huge thing about it for years. Like I think um, the bloke who was running it was dodgy as hell. Libel alert. But um... <laughs> yeah, we have no proof that the person who was running International Premier Tennis League has done anything dodgy or committed any crimes of any sort. Just for the is record. that just gone? I think. Have we ditched that? Then? I believe it's died a death. Yes, but it was. You know, yeah, they got they got big people in it. Federer played it. Agassi played it. Djokovic played yeah. it. You know, it was it was reasonable. Um, but yes, I mean, yeah. Murray played doubles with Sharapova. I think one year in that. Right. I mean, let's face it. If the tournament does that, I'm what I'll watch it. I will watch that 100. percent um, But yes, Raducanu is not playing that. She's going to play in the Mubadala against Bencic. She's then going to. I thought this was quite interesting, although I don't know how much there is to say about it. She's going to spend Christmas in Dubai, and potentially not with any of her family. Um, I said to her in the press, I said, look, this is quite a big like sacrifice, most people would think, to to give up your Christmas at home. And she said, oh, you know, I knew this when I got into tennis. That I was going to spend Christmas and New Year and birthdays away from home. Um, I've got quite a good friend who lives in Dubai. I might see her and maybe my mum or my dad will fly out, which I thought was really interesting because it's like I assumed they would sort of decamp Radicanu family Christmas to Abu Dhabi. But the suggestion was that 
it'll be her and her coaches and maybe a mate and maybe a parent, which I don't know, like that feels that feels like pretty significant. My growing impression of Emma Adekanu is she is incredibly single-minded. And Calvin, you, you may be able to speak to this and I know you've said various things about her and how people what people know about her, but like it was the way she said it with almost any like without any real acknowledgement that being away from home for Christmas might be a big deal. And I appreciate it's not a big deal for everyone, but it was pretty like forthright. Yeah, she's very single minded, always has been, I think. Um, I don't think there's much. Uh, I'm trying to think of a better word. I don't think there's much emotion there. I, I don't don't mean that uh, derogatorily, but um, yeah, I think it wouldn't it didn't surprise me that she said that. I mean, I guess tennis players are a bit like that. They kind of accept that um, tennis players and coaches. I spent my birthday this year in a hotel in hotel room in Estonia. So. I mean, we don't know what was happening between those four walls. So, I mean, you may have been having the time <laughs> of your much. life. <laughs> Not much, I can show you that. Um, yeah, I think it's, just, you know, a lot of players, um, a lot of players do go away for Christmas and especially with the Australian Open swing starting there, if you're playing qualies, that kind of thing, it tends to ha- have to be something that, that happens. There are some other players who flat out, ref- I know one British player who I know has had arguments with their, team before because they flat out refused to ever do anything other than be at home at Christmas mm. so um, it, maybe it's, it's just me yeah. maybe I'm just too, too keen on Turkey um, but yeah it was just you know and, and she's going to fly out to Australia all being well um, on the 27th of December and then yeah begin her first assault on a Grand Slam as a Grand Slam champion um, I mean, we should talk about the Australian Open because anyone who hasn't been living under a rock will now be aware of the Omicron variant, um, which is very exciting. New, working our way through the Greek alphabet. I mean, if nothing else, this is going to really educate the people of Britain about the Greek alphabet, although we've missed out a lot. No one's heard of anything since Delta and now we've got to Omicron. What happened to the new variant, you know, or the Kappa variant, some of the really good ones? Anyway, the Omicron variant, I'm told, has the Australians extremely scared. Um, they are going. They've already brought back the 72-hour quarantine rule. There's some talk that that's probably going to get longer. They've already got two cases of the uh, the Omicron variant, which seems to be more transmissible and has some vaccine breakthrough um, implications, which are obviously far from ideal. And um, George, from what you've read so far, do you think this is a serious threat to the Australian Open in any reasonable format? Oh. Good question. Um, I, I mean, I think it's just too early to say, isn't it? You, there's been so many kind of differing scientific views on it. And I think the general consensus is, yeah, it could be really bad or the vaccine could be. It, it depends how, okay, maybe like not that the vaccine less effective, but it depends to what degree the ineffectiveness of the vaccine actually yeah. makes it very you know, potent or whatever. So I think there's yeah a lot of questions about it. Um, I mean, they've, they've look. If Australia more than anywhere else is pretty, pretty tight on this stuff, so I'd say for this tournament particularly, I'd be inclined to be more worried than say another tournament. Like I think if this was before the US Open, I'd almost have no doubt about that them sorting something out and pandering to the players and working out. But Australia, they just love rules. I mean, they they really do. They love enforcing them. Um, as anyone who's been there will tell you. Um, so I, I'd be slightly more worried, but um, 
yeah, I think it's just we have to wait and see. It's too early to say at this stage, I think. Mm. Um, and kind of the, I mean, the thing that hasn't changed, and I think that we think will be true, is that players will be required to to be vaccinated for it. Um, the kind of big news line on that today was Novak Djokovic's father. There aren't a lot of vowels in this name, so I'm going to struggle to say it right, but I'm going to go Shurdan. Sh- no, that looks wrong. S-R-D-J-A-N, answers on a postcard, please, um, for how to pronounce that one. Um, he said on Serbian TV on Sunday, as far as vaccines and non-vaccines are concerned, it's the personal right of each of us, whether we'll be vaccinated or not. No one has the right to enter that intimacy. This is a translation, so I apologise for the wording. Um, it's guaranteed by the Constitution. Everyone has the right to decide on their health. Will Novak publish it, whether he's vaccinated or not? Um, I don't think so. I don't want that decision either. And even if I did, I wouldn't share it with you. Um, he has the right to decide as he wants. Uh, he also mentioned how he wouldn't be blackmailed into revealing it or blackmailed into playing the uh, the Australian Open. I mean, Calvin, we've been through a couple of different stages on this. Uh, I still find myself convinced that Novak Djokovic will play the Australian Open and do whatever it takes to do it. Um, yeah, I think he'll be there. I'm almost certain he'll be there. Um, and wouldn't surprise me if he does something weird, like actually has the vaccine, but refuses to admit that he's had it or something like that. Um, mm. But Or refuses to acknowledge that it won't say that he hasn't had it, but continue this nonsense what he's going through at the minute of just pretending that it's a major issue. Right? I, just, I, I just don't know why they... It baffles me. I, although I think that people, everybody, should, I'm on, in the camp that you shouldn't force people to have it and it's human rights and they should, people should make their own choice. I, I don't really get why you wouldn't have it. Um, although at the same time, I don't think people are helping. I don't think the people who want us to have vaccines are helping matters by saying that every variant evades the vaccine either. So yeah, I think that can cause some sort of issues. But And it feeds into what kind of Djokovic's mindset is. But... Yeah, I think he'll be there. He'll have the vaccine, I'm sure. It's that weird thing, isn't it, where I'm kind of with you. Like, I don't necessarily think people should be forced to have the vaccine, but I do think you're an idiot for not having it. Like, it's it's you should have the right to choose it, but, you know, you should have the right to choose to wear a seatbelt, but I think you're a moron not to do it. I don't like the seatbelt comparison, but, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing. It's a choice that I think you should be allowed to make, but that I think you should make the right choice. Um, Georgia, you've always thought that he'd play, haven't you? Of all the players, <clears throat> I'd be, I said in the men's top 10, I'd, I'd, he's the one I'd be least surprised if he is really firm on this and doesn't go. Um, you know, we've seen the other guys pretty much all publicly say, yeah, I'm going to have it, I'm going to go. Um, whether that be team, Medvedev, uh, Pass, they've all, they've all spoken about going and sorting it. Um I don't know. He's a strange bloke, Novak. I mean, like you have to be strange to be that good at anything, really. You have to be have it be wired in a slightly different way. Um, it just, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. It's still fairly 50-50 in my mind, but I'm, I, I am with you guys. I'm leaning towards him going, but I wouldn't be that shocked if he turns around. Does it? I would say, just for the record, though, his father does have a history of just causing him problems by saying random stuff. Um, so I would... <laughs> I would kind of take all that with a pinch of salt. There's been a few media storms where um, I think it's Serdan. I think that's how you right. say it. Uh, Very good. Said stuff about like Federer and Djokovic, like hating each other and stuff. That's kind of caused quite big headlines and a nuisance to Djokovic privately, I think. But um, anyway, that's that's just something to bear in mind. 
Well, we'll wait and see. Um, Novak, of course, is playing uh, this week uh, for Serbia in the Davis Cup, so he will be asked about it, no doubt, uh, in the near future because they, I think, are pretty much guaranteed a place in the quarterfinals. So we'll hear what um, he has to say about that. Uh, it should be noted that Stefanos Tsitsipas has had surgery on his right elbow. Um, he posted a picture of himself with his beautifully waxed chest uh, in hospital uh, after undergoing surgery. He said things often get tougher before they get easier, but with each struggle, we get an opportunity to create our own unique story. Uh, and then there's some very Tsitsipas stuff about hopes, dreams and visions and life about, uh, you, you know, like I, I love him. Like he's hilarious and he's a very valuable figure on the tour, but Sometimes it's a bit saccharine for me. Anyway, the main salient point was that he says he's looking forward to Australia, which would suggest that he has had his vaccine, um, which is good. Um, I mean, importantly, we want him to be fit and healthy and playing the Australian Open because it creates more competition all round. Um, I mentioned the Davis Cup there. We've seen a fair bit of it already. We're midway through it because of the slightly odd um scheduling uh, means we pretty much know the quarterfinal lineup. Um, Sweden are through, very surprisingly. We can chat about that later. Great Britain are through. Um, Italy are going to play Croatia and then Kazakhstan are through as well. We're still waiting on a couple of results to confirm their exact opponents. Um, best to start with Great Britain, I suppose, because we've all seen more of that than, than anything else. Um, they beat France uh, in both singles matches. Dan Evans... Uh, picking up a victory against, oh, I've forgotten, oh, Adrian Manorino, of course, uh, and then Cam Norrie beating Arto Rinichnech. Um, the lads lost the doubles, uh, Salisbury and Skupski, to Mahu and Rinichnech, uh, but it didn't matter too much. And then they beat the Czech Republic today, coming back from one rubber down uh, because Evans lost to Thomas Machak, who played the match of his life. Um, Norrie then beat Yuri Lecheka, and Joe Salisbury and Neil Skopsky then sealed the tie in um, relatively easy, but no less well-celebrated um, scenes. George, this was a group we always thought Great Britain would get through. I thought they would get through easier than winning both rubbers 2-1, if I'm honest. Um, <clears throat> I don't, I'd have said France if it had been Herbert who would be a pretty tough, tough doubles rubber to win. I was a bit surprised to see Evans lose... Um, his singles against the Czechs, but he, he's not in great form at the minute, as we've spoken about before. So maybe shouldn't be so surprised about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you though. I mean, France's team selection was pretty odd for me. Like the players they kind of picked to play singles. Um, they've got some better players, I think, who they've not gone to. Well, they um, left out Gail Monfils, right? They, they, they didn't pick him for the team at all, which is the, the odd selection. Um, um, which... Yeah, quarterfinals are tough, of course, for me. It does feel, I mean, I, I, I say it does feel like it's opening up a little bit to me, this tournament. I don't think anyone looks that good, like that full strength. Um, I think Germany will have a pretty good chance if they do come through top. I, I wouldn't expect us to beat them, really. Um, are you, I mean, really, because, I mean, just to kind of, Germany are currently playing Austria, but it looks like they're going to, um, come through that one. They, they've gone down to the doubles match, but Kevin Kruitz and Timo Putz are uh, pretty much a set up in that. So assuming it is Germany, we think we'll have Dan Evans against Dominic Kerpfer and then Jan Leonard Struth against Cam Norrie. I mean, do they not sound like pretty positive matchups to the Brits? 
I think Evans loses that at the minute, to be honest. I know Kipfer had a bit of a, you know, bad result today, didn't he? Yeah, but, he lost to um, Ronnie Enoff. But at the minute, I, I wouldn't necessarily back um, Dan to get through that. And Struff's a bit of a weird player. I mean, he's always someone who says the last person you want to see kind of first round of a draw that can never go deep um, for some reason. I don't mm. know. I mean, Norrie's playing really well, so maybe that's a bit unfair. But the, the doubles is a bit of a 50-50 as well. They, they've got decent doubles players, so... Mm. Calvin, you must have been surprised to see... I mean, Salisbury and Skupski have won titles together this year. Obviously, Joe is one of the best doubles players in the world. I mean, pretty surprising to see them lose to the French, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's dead rubber, wasn't it? I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I think that um, I, I'd still have favoured them to win that one if it was... I mean, said that, I'd say if it was live, but then if it was live, they'd probably place Mahu and Herbert. So mm. that would have been 50-50. Um, I thought they looked very good today. Um they won that one pretty comfortably. Um, and I'd favour, I'd fav- if they played Britain, I think I'd favour Britain in that, if Germany played Britain. Um, because I think Evans and Kupfer's probably, if at worst it's 50 50, I'd probably still give Evo a slight favourite in that one. Mm. I think Norrie's going to beat Struff anyway. And I'd favour Skupski and, I mean, Joe Soldier's probably the best doubles player in the world. Mm. Um, so. Although I, I have to say, I, I thought he looked nervy. Like, this is obviously his first Davis Cup, right? I mean, he, he they made him a T-shirt that says, be nice to me, I'm new, which, while being a bit cringe, made me laugh. Um, and I, I did think it, it is different, isn't it, Davis Cup? People, you know, it's a different type of tension, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but he's won Grand Slams. I mean, I, I, I don't think that... Um, I'd, and they, he'll have played it a few times now when, once they play Germany. I'd still yeah. favour him to be. And the British double system, what Louis Kaye has created, is is on a premise that you cover the court well. You cover the court. So if you, if you carry out the system well, you'll win the match. The only way that it can that you can lose on doing that is that if the opponents play well above their level. Mm. Um, and both Neil and Joe know that system to a T and you can see it today. If you know the system as, as I kind of do, you can see how that works so well because it's impossible to play against. If all you have to do is serve well, and if you serve well, then um, you'll, you'll win the match unless the opponents play out of their skin. Hmm. Well, we shall see um, how Britain go, assuming they do play Germany, which we think they will. They're then probably going to get either Spain or Russia in the semifinals. That actually depends how they go in their, um, Group. Sorry, Callan. I just I just want to say on that French match, um, although I know that Adrian Manorino is obviously a very talented player, I, I think there's never been a more obvious sort of evidence that it is harder to drop out of the top 100 than it is to get into the top 100 than Adrian <laughs> Manorino because he never seems to win anything ever. And every, every time I see him play, he just looks kind of a bit average. Um, and he's I think always you just... losing. I think you described him as the type of player you don't expect to have to play once you get into the top 100. Yeah, it's true. I mean, he missed some shots yesterday that, like, they were terrible misses. Like, he missed a short forehand that it was it was genuinely harder to miss than it was to, to make. <laughs> <laughs> and he missed it by about two metres. Um, but, yeah, it's, he's the kind of guy who you think, if, if he's playing, like, he's the kind of guy you expect to see around futures tournaments and you think, oh, God, this guy's just a nightmare. And he's pretty good at that level. But he's been like, I don't get how he's been that high. And he ne- it's more, it's not really about how good I think he is. He never seems to win anything. And he's always still around, like, just like got peerage at like number 60 in the world or whatever he is. 
It's got I mean, like Kenya there, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, he's a Lord's Temporal of the top 100. He does have a career title. He won the Rose Marlin Championships uh, in 2019. Uh, so, you know, let's not do him too much of a disservice. But yeah, he does just doesn't seem to go away. Um, oh, also, he wanted... apparently has, has his racket strung the loosest of any player in the top 100. Yeah, I mean, as I described him, an absolute pat merchant of the highest order. 50 yes, well, we obviously um, wish the British boys best of luck. Um, we should be impartial, but realistically, we are all British and we obviously know the team pretty well. Liam Brody, incidentally, uh, Calvin, you'll be glad to know, was given a ringing endorsement as a ball boy and as a cheerleader. Apparently, he's been doing an outstanding job. Um, on the sidelines and it was quite funny actually Leon Smith the captain was asked in press you know whether he might juggle the team you know with so many matches over a short period of time and he went no no I'm not I'm not going to juggle my team and then in his head he clearly went oh Liam might not like the way I've said that so but Liam's playing damn well and he's ready if we need him um, and it, it did make me laugh um, Broad's having a good time I think Broad's actually listens to this every now and again so I, I won't slag him off too much He's, he, I think he's been doing a terrific job cheerleading and I've no doubt that his ball boy skills are on point um, let's move on before I get into some real trouble uh, to the rest of the Davis Cup there's been I wouldn't say there's been many shocking team results there's been some individual results that have kind of thrown me off I think you, in the Davis Cup you get guys playing above their level sometimes Thomas Machak being an example today, the guy ranked 143 in the world who, who beat Dan Evans. Um, Chombor Piros, who I know not many of you will know particularly well, but he's a young Hungarian guy who's outside the top 250 in the world and he beat John Millman. Um, it was in vain because Hungary lost, but nevertheless, a big result. Um, I think the most intriguing group we would all agree is uh, Group A featuring Spain and the Russian Tennis Federation. Um, it's a live match between those two at the moment with the winner going through as group winner and basically avoiding Novak Djokovic's Serbia. Uh, more on him later. Russia are in a spot of trouble because Andre Rublev has just chucked in a, what I can only, I mean, you can correct me on this either of you, but a pretty shocking defeat to Feliciano Lopez in singles. I mean, what on earth is that about, George? I think I think it was Lopez's first top ten win in about three and a half years or something, Mental. It wouldn't surprise me. Um yeah, I mean, look, Lopez is obviously was a very, very good player. Um, and still can kind of give opponents heads a bit of a wobble with his kind of big lefty serve out wide, is rushing into that, he's an excellent volleyer. Um so and and Rublev, as we've said in recent weeks, has been in really bad form. Um, playing pretty awfully, to be honest. Um, I am still surprised he's losing to a 40-year-old Feliciano Lopez, yes. Um, <laughs> but the, if there was to be an upset for someone who's a bit low on confidence at the minute, Rublev was kind of primed for that. Calvin, you've always got views on, on Rublev's game. I mean, this is the first time in a long time that we've had to talk about him playing badly. Um, and just to kind of illustrate that, yes, he's lost to... Um, uh, Lopez today, he has in the last couple of months also lost to Botic, Van der Zanschloop, uh, Taylor Fritz, Kasper Rude, Tommy Paul, um, Cam Norrie as well, Francis Tiafo. You know, is it the kind of game where when it starts going wrong, there isn't much to redeem it? Yeah, he's very one-dimensional how he plays. He hits the ball phenomenally hard. 
Um, but there's not much else behind that. And he's been on bad form, hasn't he, for for some time? Or I don't know, maybe he was on good form for a long period of time. And I can see him. I, I don't think he'll be in the top ten a year from now. Um, if I'm honest, I can see him dropping out. Um, some other players coming in. I think there's some players who will come in next year. I would think, and he'd be one to drop out just because I think he's probably the least skillful out of all the top 10 players. Um, and I think most players fancy their chances against him, um, especially now. It's one of the things he's always had in his favour is he, he kind of beats the guys who are ranked lower than him and he loses to the guys who are ranked higher. Um, but that's now changed. He's not beating anyone who's ranked higher than him, really. And um, he's losing to a lot that are lower ranked than him. Yeah, I, I was actually just going to say that same thing, that we definitely have praised him numerous times throughout the year for becoming that guy who's like uber consistent in matches that he shouldn't lose. Um, which is, you know, that's a big feature of being in the top 10. That's why the top 10 guys are there. They, they don't lose many matches. They shouldn't. Um, and Calvin's right at the minute. He, he's not kind of fiddling that brief, if you like. Um, mm. So I, I actually still think he will be top 10 a year from now. I still think he's a good player and I'd expect him to kind of get back. But this is a pretty worrying drop in form. Um, and this loss won't help. I think the season being over is coming at a very good time for Andre Rublev. If this form was kicking around in like May and he had another six months to go, I'd be seriously panicking, but can kind of press a bit of a refresh button, I think. And it's funny, really, because, you know, the RTF, as they're called in ITF competitions, you know, pre-match on paper, and I think we said this last week, they should be like, you know, walking this Davis Cup they, Rublev, Medvedev, and then Karatsev and Rublev playing doubles together, who play lots of doubles together and have won titles this year playing doubles. They should be good enough to beat anyone, really. I mean, on paper, Medvedev and Rublev alone should be wrapping up every tie before the doubles even even comes into play. Um, and now, uh, as we speak, Medvedev is bageling Pablo Carreno Booster or on the way to it anyway. Um, but, you know, Granoyes and Lopez are a very good doubles pairing. Russia could lose here and, and they go through as second second place uh, qualifiers rather than group toppers. We did this with the women's top 10 last week, didn't we, where we said, who will all be there this time next year? I mean, I, I think the men's is a lot more stable than the women's typically. Like the top five, I couldn't see dropping out, really. Well, well, well Rublev is fit. So I, I, I still think he'll be top 10, personally. Um, and if Nadal Nadal will pick up enough points on the clays they'll probably be top 10 mm. but you would think maybe Hercats, Kasper Ruud would both potentially be in trouble uh, as, as well as Rublev um, because you've got the likes of Denis Shapovlov who I think probably has some results in him Felix Orgaraliasim who is currently 11th in the world um, Dominic Team yeah. yeah I mean team, the problem with Team is we're absolutely guessing with Team because we don't know how fit he is or how fit he isn't. Did you say Aslan Karatsev? No, I said Carlos Alcaraz. Oh, right, yeah, okay. That's next year, he's top 30 now. That's a step Sinner's made this year. You'd expect Sinner to start consolidating himself. Top 10 player. I, yeah? Yeah, interesting. Um, it should be noted as well that Novak Djokovic's Serbia um, struggled a little bit in the Davies Cup in that they lost Germany. Uh, Djokovic and Nikola Kacic um, lost in doubles to Kravets and Putz which is not a great result, means they are going to go through a second place, probably. Um, although it will be them or 
Russia slash Spain, and it comes down, it's probably going to come down to games one, incredibly. Um, and you will know already, listening to this podcast, exactly who made it through. Um, but they will all head to Madrid uh, if they get through, of course, in the next couple of days for the semis and the finals. Um, do we have, I mean, we might talk about this a bit more next week when we've been through the latter stages, but I'm finding the format, if it weren't spread over three cities, which is kind of absurd quite fun like you know quite like the tie being three matches one sink one singles or two singles one doubles I mean I don't know if we've got different thoughts from two years ago Calvin but you know other than the geographical nonsense it, it seems like a decent enough format yeah it's more streamlined isn't it um I think before I, I still preferred the home and away ties um also, the added added value of it being best of five sets, that kind of thing, and I think we've lost a bit of that. We're going to lose more of that when it all goes to Abu Dhabi, um, like every sporting event that ever happens in the Middle East, where there's no one ever really, there's no fans there really, is there? Um, mm. But um, I think next week, I mean, I, what I quite liked about the one um, in Spain a couple of years ago was that there were a load of different matches going on at the same time. Um, I wonder whether they'll lose a bit of that now, where there's only going to be one going on per day. Mm. Um, kind of, but I don't know. Maybe I guess we're going into uncharted territory there. Maybe it's better that there's only one going on a day once you get to the quarterfinals. But um, yeah, it's a bit. It makes it feel a bit more like they call it the World Cup of Tennis, and it's not even the only event this year that calls itself that. But you know they do, um, and it does feel a bit better. You know, a bit more exciting, like like being at a Grand Slam when you know the first week there's lots of things going on and different places and, and that's certainly been exciting um calvin alluded you alluded to it there um george you, you will know about this as well the, the move to abu dhabi um is that a done deal i mean is that pretty much in the in the book now so things that way um i think it was briggsy simon briggsy reported on it this week first um it was pretty pretty well in the know in the game he's got pretty good contacts he's not often wrong about things so yeah, I mean, I, it's not really a surprise given who's running the Davis Cup that they've made this decision, but it's obviously a pretty soulless, horrible move, isn't it? Um, who is running the Davis Cup competition for people who don't know? Cosmos, Gerard Piquet's investment company, um, who have essentially... The, the entire movement of the Davis Cup was due to finances that simply just could never be fulfilled. Like There was just no way this money was going to stay in this way without going somewhere like Abu Dhabi. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think I still feel like those who made, who voted for it, you know, these nations in the ITF were sold completely down the river. Um, you'd hope people at that level of governance would be able to see through it a little bit better. But unfortunately, when you promise that sort of ludicrous amount of wealth, you'll do anything really, I think. Um, so bit of a bit of a shame. And as Calvin said, you know, that, the home and away things I think it's lost um, because it's so rare in tennis to have that sort of partisan crowd really unless it's like you know Murray at Wimbledon or um, you know having full vociferous home support for a lot of these players it's just never going to happen like mm. when would Kazakhstan ever have voice of Kazakh player ever have vociferous home support going anywhere in the world beyond the Kremlin uh, not the Kremlin but whatever the Kazakhstan's tournament's called um mm. i, I can't remember the, the official name of it but yeah you're absolutely right and it kind of it got through to me or, or you know i already was kind of on your page but when the british captain leon smith was asked about it today and you know he he had a big exhale of breath and went you know i really hope they talk to us about this as well but 
he pointed out that not that long ago they were playing in front of 12,000 people at Brayhead in Glasgow. And, you know, as you mentioned, George, it's not always been the best players playing for Britain. You know, I remember that tie in Coventry when James Ward and someone else came back from 2-0 down against Russia to win 3-2. I can't exactly remember who the other player was, but... Dan Evans beat Tersonov, didn't he? Was it Evans and Tersonov? Okay, there you go. Um, and, you know, OK, Evo's gone on to, to be a top 30 player, but James Ward was ne- is never going to be a, a top 50 player with the greatest respect to James Ward. Like, that was never going to be him, but he had the opportunity at the Rico Arena to play in front of, you know, five, 10,000 people chanting his name. And, and that's the kind of opportunity that the Davis Cup affords to guys like that. And as we've seen this week, you know, with a number of guys from outside the top 100 recording career-best results... Um, there's even one which is potentially unfolding, Daniel Alahi Gallan. I mean, I know he's a, a higher ranked player than that, but he is outside the top 100 and he's potentially about to beat John Isner and Colombia very much could knock out the US because of that, because they've got a very good doubles pairing. And, you know, that that's a huge result for someone like him. And, you know, guys at that level, and Calvin, you'll know this from your coaching career, guys at that level don't get to play in front of those crowds. You, you know, a challenge, what, what would be a good crowd for a challenger final? 2,000 maybe? That'd be an exceptional crowd for a challenger final. You might yeah. get that in France maybe, um, maybe certain places in America, but nowhere else would you get, if you get 10% of that for a challenger final, you're doing pretty well. Mm. Um, but I, I think also it's affected like the winners of things. I remember when the year that Great Britain won it, after the first round, I think Britain beat America first round, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they beat him in the baseball stadium, didn't they? I'll um, fact check you, but carry on. Yeah. Uh, and I said to a mate of mine at the time that Britain are going to win this because I'd looked at it and how it used to work back then was that if you played a team away one one tie you had to play the next time you played the same team even if it was 20 years later you had to play them away mm. uh, and I looked at it and, and thought who could who were Britain going to play and where are they going to get them are they going to get them home or away and, and as it happened the, the away ties were against the teams who you'd massively favour them against anyway and the potentially tougher home ties were again were, the potentially tougher ties were all at home yeah. and they had Andy Murray and so I was looking at thinking, like, who's going to be, what, what team here are Britain going to get that are going to bring two players who can beat Andy Murray? Um, and they were pretty good at doubles as well. So I think once you take it onto a neutral ground on a sort of, I guess, medium pace hardcore, probably slow hardcore, like they were, are everywhere else, you're just going to end up getting the best team or will just win it. It's not affected by anything else. And I don't see how that's going to be any different from like, you're going to have that. And then a month later, you're going to have the ATP Cup, which is on the same looking court on the same surface, and it's going to get played on the and pretty much under the, the exact same format. I don't, I don't like. It just seems such a such a waste, really. And I can see the Davis Cup just fading away, and or one well, the ATP Cup. I don't think anyone massively cares about anyway. Quite quite interesting on that point because <clears throat> a few conversations I'd had had said that the ATP Cup and Davis Cup were. In- locked in talks about merging um but sorry uh, what does that mean yeah i don't know i mean they were talking about this you can't just say merge it's like it's like you know what i mean i think the real answer is that yes there are too many teams well there's too many people trying to do the same thing and the atp cup should just sack itself off and, and that would be fine um, and the Hopman Cup can do its thing if it wants. It's only for four days a year and it's a bit of a joke, so fine. Um, although that's, you know, 
people like it. I don't care. But really, the, the real answer with the Davis Cup is not to do it every year. Because if you do it every year, it's just another thing on the schedule that is absolutely effectively exhausting the players. And if you look at all the other successful team tournaments, they're not annual. You know, barring the Six Nations, which, I mean, rugby has a massive calendar problem, which is partly down to the fact that these things happen every year. You know, you take the Ryder Cup or you take the World Cup or the European Championships, they're, they're not every year. And I think that makes them massively more special. I think that internationally, yeah, but I guess I guess football's a bit different. You have the Champions League every year, that kind of thing. But this would kind of be like the Champions League. Like if you have the Champions League final in May, and then in or halfway through July, you have the European Club Cup. Yeah, and it would just lose its sort of importance. It kind of lose like the excitement of like the whole point of the Davis Cup is which country is best at tennis. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be, and and that remains for a year. And then you have the same thing. I think the thing is on the same court, same surface with the exact same format, like six weeks later, it just seems so, so pointless and so idiotic. You could get, I genuinely think you could probably get away with the ATP cup. If you still had the home and away ties in, in, because then it's a bit different. You, you're offering a different product to what's a week, uh, what's six weeks later. At the minute, there's there's zero difference. Or once it moves to Abu Dhabi, there's going to be zero difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm personally with James in terms of the, the year thing, purely because I think they should make more of a build-up about which country it's going to make something more exciting and have a bit of a bidding process and do something very different and have a different style of draw or whatever. Like, there's so many ways you can innovate and make it kind of a very different thing on the calendar. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. Look, we don't need two events. So that, that's been pretty clear. We certainly don't need them six weeks apart. It's just mental. Mm. Oh, and make it mixed, obviously. Like, yeah. like absolutely, obviously. Because if you made it mixed, you could very easily turn them into five match ties. I mean, or maybe that would be overkill. But, you know, t- two men singles, two women singles and a mixed doubles. You know, that would be pretty... Okay, you wouldn't necessarily be able to fit them all in one day, but it would be hella watchable, wouldn't it? The, the issue with the further expansion, and this was a big issue in the first year and why it went to Madrid, was actually the space of where to put all these matches. Like mm. it's, it's pretty difficult to have that many kind of open ties when you're trying to squeeze it into um, a time frame. Um, I mean, obviously, Abu Dhabi, they'll probably just build the space, so it'll be fine there. It won't be such a <laughs> Um, but that is generally an issue for like hosting a World Cup of tennis. Is like the infrastructure is not really in that many places. But then, as as you say, George, if it was every four years and you were bidding yeah. for it like a World Cup, no place that gets the World Cup ever has the infrastructure in place. The whole point is that you build it. You know, it's field of dreams. If you build it, they will come, and, yeah, and that's your market research, it. Jeremy. And you think it'd be pretty appealing, like build like a cool tennis centre in every city or somewhere, you know, or everyone that doesn't have one within a country. Yeah, or you stick temporary ones in. What was the tournament recently? Uh, It was one of the um, indoor tournaments later in the season. I was watching it for some reason. And their second, was it potentially in Vienna? Their second court was like a temporary thing that they built in the middle of town, like in the town hall or something. So they had the tennis centre and then their sort of second big court was like you could just walk past and pay 10 euros and sit on the court for an hour. Um, you know, those those kind of venues have real character, I think. You know, um, that, that USA tie, for example, was in Glasgow as it happens rather than being away. And actually, 
when Britain won the Davis Cup in 2015, all their matches were at home except for the final where they went to Ghent. But to go and play tennis in those different venues, you know, if you if, if Britain were to get the Davis Cup, you could have the O2 as the main court, but you could also put a main court in, I don't know, the Excel Centre or close the roof on Wimbledon and stick a hard court on it. I mean, I know that's completely unfathomable, but you can see where I'm going with it. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, on that, I think what the point that you're trying to make there, James, I think I've probably got the year wrong, but Britain did play the US and they played it in a baseball stadium. Yeah. I don't know whether it's the year before or the year after. Yeah, um, I, I, I do remember that happening, yeah. Or, or when yeah, just, did France not play the final in the Lyon football stadium? I can't or remember. Marseille. Sure, Marseille. But, um, it was epic. I remember it. But it's, it's this sort of thing that we're getting to now. And it's, it's not just tennis, it's all sports where you kind of, the, the powers that be kind of justify going to places like Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia just why because, well, they'll offer the most money. And boxing has gone this way as well, where, where you've got people like Eddie Hearn saying, just justifying it, well, we're going to fight, the, ne- the next big fight will be in Abu Dhabi because they offered the most money. Mm. Like, well, they're always going to do that because they're the richest countries in the world. So why not just take everything there then? Should we just take all sport there because they'll offer the most money? It, you can't just go on that. There has to be a line drawn on it somewhere. Yeah, and I think it's it's not new, is it, that like we're running out of people who think that sport is more important than money. Um, funnily enough, if anyone has seen the film Basketball, there's an excellent monologue at the beginning of that, um, which explains why why commercialism has basically ruined sport. And that was written 20 years ago. I don't deny that you know sport gets a huge amount of benefit from politics and money being involved, but it also drives a huge amount of pain and um, exasperation, which which I suppose maybe neatly takes onto our next topic. Although I wouldn't like to make light of a segue. Um, there will be more Davis Cup over the next week, of course. Um, when we come back next week, we will know who has won it. We'll be celebrating a British victory, no doubt, and the uh, virtues of Neil Skutsky and Joe Salisbury's double system in there. Yes, George? We, are we going to risk a prediction? Uh, I will happily risk a prediction. I've watched quite a lot of Davis Cup this week, and I will predict that I get it wrong. <laughs> um I mean, I said Italy at the beginning, and they've not been bad, although they haven't won a doubles match yet, which I think is going to catch up with them because there are some really good doubles teams going through. Um, mm, mm, I mean, I, I if Russia get through the Spain match tonight, I still fancy Russia. Yeah, I, I would take Russia as well, to be honest, but <clears throat> with the, the worry that they might go out before this podcast comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think that, you know, it, it does come, I think it comes down to doubles a lot. Like a lot of ties have gone into doubles one all. And Croatia have Mektic and Pavic, who are the best doubles team in the world. So, you know, it's hard to kind of bet against them and they are through, crucially. Um, they play Italy next, don't they? Right? Yeah, and, and you know... But I just fear that Italy might do them twice because Croatia don't really have a number two singles player and Marin Cilic is the number one singles player. And so, you know, you might be done before the doubles even happen. So it's as you you know what, when you look at it like that, George, it is wide open. Calvin, who are you picking? I, I think Britain might win it um, because I think that, as you, as you pointed out there, I, I think that they I'd favour Salisbury and... Um, Skopski to win any doubles match apart from maybe Croatia and I think that we'd beat Croatia at singles anyway mm. so I, I think if Russia could be tough if they go through but I'd favour I think that Evo would beat um, Rublev again so 
Um, Medvedev probably beat Norrie and I'd massively favour um, Skupski and uh, Salisbury against any of the doubles players. So I, I, I do think that Britain could win it. Um, that There's not any potential when you look at matchups who you think those two singles matchups are terrible matchups for Britain. Mm. You, there's always one that you favour heavily one of our players to win. And then I think they'd win the will win the doubles against anybody again, apart from maybe Mektic and Pavic. Yeah. Serbia would be pretty tight as well, I think, as another team. If they do squeeze through, like in terms of Novak's definitely beating Norrie. Like Norrie, yeah. I think, will give a good account of himself against most people. But yeah. Medvedev and Djokovic are definitely beating Norrie in that match. And who's then, there too, though? Is it Lajovic? Or yeah, who's the well it's Krajinovic actually. They dropped though Lajovic played the first one and Krajinovic played the second one. You know, that's a tough one. I mean, that's 50 50 with Dan at the minute, given Dan's form. I think I'd probably lean yeah. towards Krajinovic in that match if he played. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's one of those players who you, that's the type of player who Evo likes playing against, I think. And then if it gets to that, you've always got Wildcat. If Djokovic plays doubles, then he's he's still right in there and, and he's a better player than, than um, Skupski or Salisbury. So. Um, and in any close match, in any sport, in any close match, I always say if any if something's close, pick the team with the best player, and that's what you go for on that. So <laughs> maybe, but I'd say I still think Brit. I think Britain might. Um, I think they'll go deep. I think they'll be tough to beat. I think they'll beat Germany for sure. Yeah. Um, let's move on um, to slightly grimmer topics. Uh, I said we'd talk about Punctuay again, and and we will, and we'll try and keep talking about her whenever there's something new to talk about. Um, she. The WTA said this week that they remain deeply concerned about the Chinese tennis star. Um, we know that there's been a series of videos released. There's also been a series of emails written to the WTA from Peng Shui's email account. I think anyone who has seen those, who knows anything about the CCP, will agree with Steve Simon when he says that he remains deeply concerned that Peng is not free from censorship or coercion and that he has decided not to re-engage via email until he's satisfied her responses were her own not those of her senses. Um, I think the thing that's, and George, you, you may be better placed to, to kind of deal with this, but what's troubling me at the moment is I don't know when we can be convinced that Peng Shui is able to speak freely. Do you know what I mean? Like, we could get her out of China, but her family will still be in China, and therefore she's still susceptible to coercion and, and to blackmail and that sort of thing. It, it's hard to see a situation where she can speak freely. I think the, the, the interesting thing we sort of touched on before is like you know, the fact she's we're not sure if she's retired or not is quite a big issue in this whole thing as well. Like, I mean, if she was to return to the tour and start traveling around again, you know, you'd, I, I guess if she was 25, for example, rather than 35, mm. we, we kind of know she's meant to be coming back to the tour and doing that. Yeah. Whereas now it's a bit like, could be kind of believable if she did reply hadn't played much anyway um so yeah i don't know i mean it, i think the very sad thing about this is yeah we just may never get a serious conclusion i mean like she could just be I, i'm not even that convinced she'll come out of china to be honest i mean that that's no. sadly, I, I, if she's retired from the tour i, I wouldn't i don't know i mean it's just such a horrible situation. I just wouldn't be that surprised if we didn't see her again, which is quite a grim thing to say. Yeah. Really. And it, it's a situation that many people have found themselves in before and, you know, the Jack Mars of this world or, or um, Ai Weiwei or um, Lu Jia, who we've talked about before. And I would urge you to go and read about these people because 
Um, you know, they've all had cases where the Chinese Communist Party have censored them and have pretty much hamstrung them from saying anything about it until they were able to get out of the country. This is what authoritarian regimes do. We saw in Czechoslovakia, in Russia, and now in China for years, um, and in still in other parts of the world. So, yeah, it's 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 horrendous, and it it's one of those things where, you know, I feel because I'm still a working journalist and still find myself covering it. And I feel completely like ill-equipped to properly talk about it. And then that's why you go and speak to people who do know what they're talking about and human rights experts and the rest of it. But you just feel as though there's nothing you can do. And so I suppose the only thing we can do is keep talking about it. And people, you know, this is, this is how the Germans, the German political, um, political system basically got uh, a woman called Yu Jia, who was under house arrest for a decade because her husband was a, sort of um dissident poet and he died and they kept her on house arrest and eventually the german government just said we're going to keep asking for you to free her and the chinese government eventually went fine whatever we don't care anymore um and she got out so it does give me some hope that she can get out i think the thing that really concerns me is that this is actually much bigger than peng shui and, and not to say that any life is bigger than another but she represents the me too movement in china now and the Me Too movement in China did not get much of a movement, didn't move much. And this is a, a shot. And the reason it's so controversial is a shot right at the heart of the Chinese government. And, you know, um, Zhang was one of the most powerful people in China for a long time. So it concerns me that women in China aren't being listened to when it comes to sexual assault and that sort of thing. And it will continue to concern me. And I don't know how much there is I can do about it. Did I read this week that he, he's not been seen either? yeah i mean it wouldn't surprise me if the ccp have very much got him under lock and key because it doesn't you know this whole thing is deeply embarrassing for the chinese government as much as it's incredibly grim and troubling from a human rights movement it's also very embarrassing for the chinese government for him to be involved in this way um so yeah it wouldn't surprise me if he has been kind of hidden away as well Uh, but yes i mean he's also like 75 and retired so i mean (laughs) without wanting to kind of trivialize it you might not see him anyway um but yeah it's all it's all pretty uh pretty unpleasant we'll, we'll keep you up to date with all the latest from it um as much as we can uh to move on from that if we may george have you got any other business for me i don't think so really i think that's been a pretty common i believe you mentioned well, joe, joe conti yeah that was the only other thing i'd written down i, mean, I think it's something we can potentially talk about another time when we've got a bit more yeah. time um because i would like to talk more about it calvin you look like you've got any other business yeah, just a quick one. A strong week for um, young Brits and Brits further down the rankings today. We've had winner, uh, I think, uh, 18-year-old and 19-year-old and a 20-year-old have all won um, 15K titles today. Um, Would that be Sonic Sonic Cartel has had a phenomenal start to her professional career. I think she's she's lost one match in three tournaments um, oh. and destroyed everybody who, for people that don't know, is is kind of... At a younger age was the same. She was the same age as Emma Raducanu, but has had some injury issues. She's a very, very skillful player, um, and she won the British Pro League, which is what Emma Raducanu won last year, um, and basically dominated the Pro League this year. Then she started just absolutely battering everybody in fifteen um, Ks, and then uh, wins for Jack Pennington Jones, who's one of the leading British jun- the leading British junior, and Felix Gill also won a title. So strong week for the. Um, well, those guys. 
Well, given she won the British Pro League, we know who's winning the US Open next year now. So <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. It, it normally leads, there's a 100% record of winners of Women's Pro League. And um, <laughs> and also, uh, just a quick one as well, the LTA or British Tennis announced um, their tournament structure for next year, and it's very, very strong for the start of year. So if, if anybody wants to watch some tennis in Britain, uh, I think there's, there's either a... A futures tour, a 25k futures tournament, men's and women's, a pro league or a tier one British tour. I think every week for the first 12 weeks of next year, um, somewhere in the country. And where you, that was actually, you, I was going to ask you where in the country, I mean, where do these tend to take place? Because often it could be concentrated in one place, or are we all over the place? Um, they're, they're scattered around the country. If you, you give me one minute, I will find it where the, where their first ones are. Um, while you're searching yeah this was something I wanted to put in the schedule I mean this is very very encouraging news I thought from a British perspective it looks the most comprehensive calendar I can really remember um, kind of lower level stuff which which, you know is something that I feel we should take some credit for because we have repeatedly discussed on, on this podcast about how the Italian system has lots of tournaments and it creates competitive tournaments for players who can then develop and you know, I, I think we have to take credit for it because because it's us. It's all it's all us, and specifically Calvin. So um, yeah, so it starts off twenty uh, seventh of December, uh, Premier Tier British Tour in Loughborough, and then a Progress Tour in Cardiff, twenty five k men's and women's in Bath, uh, Pro League to be confirmed venue, twenty five k in Loughborough, um, Pro League to be confirmed again, twenty five k Shrewsbury and Edgbaston. 25k Glasgow and then sort of then we're into we're into February then and I can update from there I guess mm. um, yeah well, well we'll do our best to kind of flag those because as you say I, I think we've said it before on this on this show that you don't necessarily always appreciate how good the tennis at these tournaments is until you go and watch it and courtside appreciate that you know just because someone's 500 in the world and you haven't necessarily heard of them before doesn't mean they're not doing an exceptional job yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, the standard is is very high, um, and it, it gives British players a real opportunity to make money and climb the rankings as well. Because especially mm. with the situation we're in now, when we may be going back into where travelling would be hard again, um, and it would also make it difficult, I guess, for foreigners to come over here as well to yeah. um, to play in those. So I think they'll mainly be mainly just, even though they're world ranking events, I'd expect they're ninety percent British players who are playing mm. them. Very good. We look forward to it. Um, I think that's all we've got time for uh, today. Uh, Thanks as always for listening. Leave us a rating and a review as more and more you are every day. Um, Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod uh, and we'll be back next week. Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.